Hello and welcome to this episode of the Investors and Entrepreneurs Discussions Podcast. My name is Cahill Murphy and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of the UCD Student Managed Fund. We are a student-led investment club under the Investors and Entrepreneurs Society with over €25,000 in assets under management. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. David Kelly, the Chief Global Strategist and Head of the Global Market Insights Strategy Team at JP Morgan. David studied economics in UCD before moving to the US, where he studied at Michigan State University, achieving a master's and a PhD in economics. David has over 20 years of experience in the financial industry, having worked for firms such as Lehman Brothers, McGraw-Hill and Putnam Investments before joining JP Morgan Asset Management in 2008. Hi, David. It's great to have you back in UCD, albeit in a virtual capacity. Thank you very much for coming on. I'm very glad to be here. So before we jump into all things markets, many of our analysts would be interested to find out why you decided to pursue further research in economics and then go on to achieve a PhD. Well, I, I started out, I did uh, undergraduate economics in uh, UCD, and I was actually at the time I was very interested in politics. My father was a politician in Ireland, uh, and the reason I did economics was because he was a lawyer. Uh, and while I thought he was a rather good politician, uh, and he talked a lot about the economy, he didn't actually understand very much about the economy. So I thought this would be a good idea. So I did an undergraduate degree in UCD, and then I realized I ended up with lots of questions, but no answers. So I thought the way this field works is that I was supposed to do an undergraduate degree to figure out all the questions, and then do a PhD to figure out all the answers. Uh, so, so I decided to go ahead and do a PhD. And then, to be honest, I also, you know, at, at that stage of my life, it was a nice idea to come over to America and see a little bit of the world. So uh, that, that's why I that's why I embarked on a PhD. Wow, yeah, that's really interesting and it must have been a big change to follow on from this. What steered you then to the world of investing in financial markets? Well, once you do, once you do economics for a while, you realize that economists as economists don't really get paid very much. And while they get to work on very interesting things, people don't really appreciate their opinions very much. Um, so, uh, you know, as I was uh, studying um, in uh, Michigan State and, and doing my uh, PhD there, uh, I realized that, you know, finance was actually kind of a fun way of using economics. And it was also rewarding. So uh, you know, as I was applying for jobs, I was uh, certainly thinking about that at the time. Now, I didn't start out in finance. I started out, uh, my first job out of college was uh, with a, well, actually, I worked for the state of Michigan for, for a while, uh, forecasting the revenues. But uh, once I graduated with my PhD, I, I went to work for an economic forecasting firm. But it, it was pretty, pretty clear to me all along that the way to make money in, in, out of an economics degree was to actually study economics and the markets. And, and that's um, what I've been doing ever since. Thank you. That's actually really interesting. And it's great to hear from your perspective of things. Now, I'd love to delve into markets as many of our listeners are keen to hear your insights. Part of your job involves explaining complex economic and market concepts to clients in like your podcast and research notes. It'd be really insightful to learn how you approach these really complex issues and how you find signal from the noise. Well, I think that there's two parts to this. One part of it, of course, is the research, and that's really interesting. And I, you know, I do have an economics background, and I did a, I got a CFA um, a, a label after I finished with my economics. So I've I've, I've done plenty of, of research over the years, and I continue to do that. Uh, but I think it's also very important uh, to just try to explain things uh, to people simply. And, and that starts really from a desire to do so. Um, it's, you know, I don't think it's that complicated. You, you have to figure out, well, how would I explain this simply? Um, you know, if I've got a point that I want to make and I want to get it across to somebody, how do I get that point across? And, and usually it's by, by 
uh, you know, by the use of analogies or stories that, you know, make it relatable to something in their lives. For example, if you look at a chart of US unemployment for the last 50 years, what it actually looks like, if you look at it, is, is a series of playground slides. You know, it goes up more steeply than it comes down. And then as it comes down, it sort of curves at the bottom. And so if you explain that to people, they say, well, actually, that is kind of what it does, isn't it? And, and then they get it. Uh, whereas, you know, if you, if you delve, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, first derivatives and second derivatives, you've lost them completely. So um, I, think it's, I think it's almost a responsibility of an economist or somebody in finance to try to explain something as simply as possible. And by the way, the very process of doing that really, I think, helps the thought process in trying to figure out well, what's right about this and what's wrong about this or weird about this. And I think it, it helps with how you think about economic problems. To review the eventful year that financial markets have had in 2020, from your vantage point, what stood out to you as the biggest drivers of the economy and financial markets? And also, if you could help explain the disconnect we may have seen between the two. Well, uh, obviously the pandemic uh, it had an, an enormous impact. Uh, I think there's, you know, as the pandemic emerged for a few weeks, people realized this is getting worse and worse and worse. It could be really, really bad. Uh, but... For years in the United States, at least, and this is true probably for global markets, has been, uh, but particularly the United States, has been a very steady flow of money into financial markets. Uh, frankly, the, the income gap has been getting greater and greater in, in, in America, and that means there are fewer people buying goods and services, and there are more rich people who have the wherewithal to buy investments. And so money has been flowing into financial markets for years, and we've had a very long expansion. Then we get hit by this sudden recession, but almost immediately, as this process is going on, we, re we realized that there were firms that were able to function perfectly well in, the, in this environment. In fact, the very firms that were the biggest in the US equity market, the big technology firms, the financial firms, uh, the consumer companies, they were actually able to do very well. The, the, the companies that were going to have trouble, the airlines, the entertainment, the leisure, the restaurants, aren't really a big part of the US stock market. So one part of this was simply the part of the economy that was going to do well actually was very well represented in the stock market. Uh, and then I think the second part is that as soon as this pandemic hit, we realized, okay, okay, this is where we are, but we can sort of see how we're going to get out of this eventually. I mean, this pandemic, either through, through infection or inoculation, is going to end. And when it does, this economy is going to come bouncing back. So I mean, if you think about back to the great financial crisis, after people really weren't sure how the economy is going to operate, I think people know that this economy is going to, and the global economy is going to boom when this pandemic is over. So I think that gave markets a lot of confidence. So I think that's why the markets were able to do so well. Uh, the equity market was able to do so well, even while the economy and all of society was suffering, uh, you know, in a way that really hasn't been true for, you know, probably since World War II. That was a really helpful explanation. To follow on from this, we've seen growth stocks drastically outperform value stocks for some time now. Would you expect to see a reversion in this trend? We are seeing a partial reversion so far this year. Value stocks have been doing much better and growth stocks have been lagging behind a bit. I'd expect that to continue because what's, at least for the, for the rest of the year. And the reason for that is that we're still, we're, we're just sort of building towards a very strong rebound in the economy. Um, so not only is in the United States, the vaccination process is, uh, program is actually going pretty well. Uh, we're up to 100 million doses or more than 100 million doses uh, administered. Um, the, and the, a sizable chunk of the population has a disease already. So we do think that the pandemic is going to wind down over the summer in the United States. 
uh, and that's going to cause the economy to boom. And then you've got this massive fiscal stimulus package, which is going to pour into the economy over the next few quarters. But not, not just, it's, it's huge in size, but it's very concentrated in a short time period and very concentrated on low and middle income households. So it's going to cause the economy to absolutely boom. Now, what that's going to do is it's going to push up interest rates. So what you've got is rising interest rates and faster economic growth. And that does favor value stocks. Uh, value stocks are dominated by things like uh, particularly financials. Financial companies do well when long-term interest rates are going up. Um, and the reason for that is they tend to lend long and borrow short. And so if, long, if the yield curve steepens, if long-term interest rates go up, that makes a, a lot of money for financial firms. They're, they're the biggest part of the value sector. Um, but also energy companies uh, are part of value and they tend to do very well when the economy is booming uh, because the oil prices go up. Um, industrials tend to do well. They're also part of value. So the, these sectors, which are very aligned to economic rebound, are really very well represented in value. And I think that is causing value to outperform growth. And, and you know, to your question of, well, could it, could it continue? We've seen long-term long interest rates move up to about 1.6% on the 10-year treasury, but that's still below the long-term rate of inflation. And that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to have negative real rates in an expanding economy, which was heading very fast back to full employment. So we think long-term rates could go back up to over 2% by early 2022. And if that happens, this trend of value outperforming growth could, uh, you know, should have uh, some legs for at least the next few months. Post the 2008 recession, many people had expected there to be much higher inflation due to relatively extreme monetary easing in the form of QE and low interest rates. Do you think that this time is different because of the concentrated and large fiscal policy that we have seen? Well, I, I remember learning uh, learning economics back in UCD. There's a, a great guy called uh, Moore McDool, um, who is a, a rather right-wing economist, and we were all supposed to hate him because he was right-wing, but actually he had... Uh, had some really interesting insights, but he, he, he loved Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman used to say that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Now, while I have great respect for Milton Friedman, he, he was somebody who spoke very clearly in economics, that actually isn't true. Um, in money is, or too much money is a necessary but not sufficient condition for inflation. What you have to have is excess aggregate demand really pushing on the economy. And we never quite got there. Um, and one of the reasons, actually, was the central banks flooded the, the, the world of money, pushed interest rates down to very low levels. But when you push rates from a low level to down, down to an even lower level, you actually don't stimulate anything. And I wish that the European Central Bank would read this memo, never mind the, the Federal Reserve, because it just doesn't work. It doesn't stimulate anything. So we managed to basically uh, 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 you know, sedate the entire global economy with this very easy money. And we also had, uh, then, of course, had some fiscal restraint both in Europe and in the United States uh, when the Republicans took over um, the House of Representatives in uh, 2011. Um, so those things slowed the rebound. Um, and so long as the economy was just growing slowly, no matter how much money you had, the money was ending up in the hands of richer people who'd save it and put it into financial assets anyway. So you, you still ended up with a situation where you don't have enough aggregate demand to cause real inflation. Now, there are other things which have pushed down inflation in the long run. But the basic lesson from that period is if you're going to run the economy at 2% growth, you're not going to get inflation no matter how much money you have. Uh, yeah, I think I'd like to touch on a point there that you mentioned. Um, I think it would seem that the central bank policy that we had observed kind of, as you said, resulted in financial asset price inflation as, kind of as, as opposed to real economy inflation. 
this perhaps widen the wealth gap in the US? And I'd like to hear your insights on how income or wealth inequality may affect the economy and inflation. Well, pretty profoundly. Um, so yes, that, that, that has been what I think we, we've observed. In fact, that the gap in income has been growing since the uh, mid-1980s. And I think that's probably true for the gap in wealth. The gap in wealth is even more extreme than the gap in income, by the way. Uh, the top 10% of households in America have about 50% of the income, but they have 75% of the wealth, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. I mean, if you think about it, if 10 people walk into a shop, the, the 10th person in the door has got more wealth than the other nine combined three times, um, which is, you know, says something astonishing. But it, you know, it's really important, actually, if you think about you know, basic macroeconomics 101, you've got a circular flow of income. You produce $100 worth of output, you generate $100 worth of income. And the idea is that income is supposed to flow around the economy and buy the output. The problem with that is that half of the income is going to the top 10%, and they save about 30% of that income. The rest of the population is spending all of their income. But because that top 10% is saving 30%, there isn't, there's never enough money coming around the other side to actually buy all the stuff. What it's doing is it's getting diverted into savings. But what, it's not really savings accounts. That's getting diverted into mutual funds and, and investments. And so this, you're, you're chronically short of aggregate demand for goods and services, and you've got an excess demand for financial assets. And so this growing wealth gap, I think, has both contributed to low underlying inflation, high asset price inflation, and also sort of kept the economy relatively subdued uh, despite you know, aggressive monetary policy for years. That was really interesting, especially about the circular flow of income. To bring it back to policy, we've seen Friedman economics dominate in the form of monetary easing. Is it time for John Maynard Keynes to make a return to the main stage? Will fiscal policy dominate for the foreseeable future? Yeah, there is a, yeah, there is a, a certain amount of Keynesianism about what they're doing right now, but I, I would say that it uh, goes well beyond what Keynes would ever have advised. Uh, we are now in the throes of something called modern monetary theory here in the United States. Uh, and that is the idea that you can run deficits no matter how big, because it doesn't matter, because so until you have inflation, um, you don't have a problem. And when you do have inflation, you just push up taxes to deal with it. Um, I think it's a very dangerous game. Um, it is true that if you've got an economy with uh, a lot of slack in it, you can run deficits, and you probably should run deficits to try to get the economy to, to take up the slack. The problem is that if you if you build up deficits and build up assets and debt, you're sort of building up this, this, this um, unstable structure. And at some stage in the future, people may wonder if the government has the ability to pay back or the willingness to pay back on all this debt, and then long-term interest rates go up. When those long-term interest rates go up, then the government has a much harder time financing it, its uh, spending and purchases. And you can also have asset bubbles which, which burst and, and cause huge problems. And, but we have sort of seen this adoption of modern monetary theory, not because anybody studied it carefully or really thought about it carefully, but it is politically very easy. It's a very easy thing to swallow. Uh, you know, instead of the austerity that Europe uh, was crushed by after the great financial crisis and really which, you know, contributed to the European debt crisis, um, you have this idea, well, you just run big deficits and, and no problem. And of course, the politicians who do this get rewarded by getting reelected. And the politicians that don't are supposed to be harsh and mean. But the, the truth is, it's just it, it's, um, it's sort of paper money. If you, if you actually succeed in generating the growth and output that you, you want to do, if you do get the economy to full employment, then you may well end up with inflation. And by the way, when you end up with inflation, it's not 
it, it shouldn't be just that easy to, oh, we can just taper it a little bit and the inflation will go away. I mean, it's, it's, if you think about any house of cards or any, um, you know, uh, any Ponzi scheme, you know, as soon as people start pulling money out, it's not like it, you know, bubbles don't deflate, bubbles burst. And, uh, and I think it's, it's important for people to realize that, that this is not a, this, this theory is not well grounded in, in um, economic principles. And what probably is going to happen is at some stage, there's going to be uh, an almighty financial blow up because of all these, these uh, countries adopting uh, modern monetary theory. Uh, yeah, that 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 was that was going to be my next question. Actually, was on MMT, and it's really interesting your insights on it. And I guess, like, wouldn't inflation or hyperinflation rather affects the lower income households a lot more than it would the wealthier households anyway? So MMT could, in the long run, be counterproductive to its original aim of helping your average individual. Not necessarily. I mean, I think that if if MMT was to result in a boom and then a bust and then mass unemployment, then yes, the people at the bottom will get hurt most by that. And they'll get hurt most because if, even if everybody's wealth was cut in half, the guys at the bottom just can't afford their wealth to be cut in half. The guys at the top may, may say, well, I'm half as rich as I was last year, but it doesn't really matter. It make much difference to my day-to-day lives, uh, day-to-day life. So um, I I don't think that there's uh, there's anything in particular. So that's with with a bust. With regard to hyperinflation, I mean I don't think we're going to get to hyperinflation at any stage. I don't think uh, there are lots of reasons why inflation just won't won't get that high. Uh, but with a bit of inflation, um, it's not necessarily the case that it hurts the poor more than the, than the rich. I mean if you look in the 1970s when the world had significant inflation, um, actually uh, incomes were much more equally distributed than they are today. And it is in a period when we've had falling inflation. We've actually had rising asset prices as a result of falling inflation. And that has uh, contributed to this growth in the wealth gap. So I don't. it's a bad thing to have a, a boom and a bust, but I don't think it necessarily hurts the poor relative to, in, in relative terms to, to the rich. And um, I think we, we may have seen a similar boom and bust in Japan uh, in the 20th century, where they had rather large asset price inflation, and mm-hmm. then in both in real estate and obviously in stocks, and then a pretty large bust thereafter. And now we see the Bank of Japan, they've been buying bonds for, it must be over 15 years now, and they've mm-hmm. been involved in the equity market. Is that a potential scenario in the US if MMT continues? Probably not. We probably don't need to do that in the U.S. There are enough enough people who are enthusiastic about buying stocks in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is a much more stock buying culture than anywhere else in the world. Uh, about fifty six percent of the tradable stocks in the world are actually in the United States. So it's uh, um, you know there's plenty in the public will buy the stocks. Uh, but I think you know the the history of Japan shows that super low interest rates don't stimulate anything. But with regard to fiscal policy, I mean, Japan never really did try the full MMT. What the, the problem was that Japan ran bigger and bigger deficits very slowly. It was kind of like half an aspirin a year. So they would just gradually run these bigger deficits, but never shock the economy into actually recovering. And of course, because of low interest rates, because people never really got out of a recessionary or slow growth mindset, the economic growth was always going to be pretty slow in, in Japan. So Japan sort of got stuck in a sort of stagnation equilibrium. Um, and you know that's what I think we were headed towards for much of the aftermath of the great financial crisis. Uh, there's a lot of bumps along the way before we would get that get to there, given fiscal policy right now. I mean, I do want to emphasize, 
easy money doesn't stimulate anything. Very easy fiscal policy where you're giving money to low and middle income households and telling them to go spend it. That does work. Uh, they will spend it. Um, and so uh, I, think, uh, I think a lot of people in America are going to be surprised by just how powerful these big deficits can be in stimulating growth if you give money to poor and uh, middle income households. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess maybe as a more global question, uh, w- given where we are with US equity market valuations, do you see for the investor there be more opportunities in other asset classes or markets? Because like, obviously they, they want to balance their desire for enhanced returns, but then protection from volatility, which we've seen quite a lot of in the US equity market. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, you can get some growth, obviously, in emerging market equities, uh, and I have no problem with those. I think uh, the Chinese story, from an economic perspective, is going to continue for many years to come, and they will be the biggest economy in the world before this decade is out. Uh, but also, Europe, I think, is, uh, you know, I think the, the European economy is not booming, but uh, there are plenty of uh, European luxury good, goods makers and, and uh, you know, other European companies which are quite capable of doing well in this environment. And European stocks are cheap and Japanese stocks are cheap and European stocks pay significantly higher dividends than US stocks. So um, I think any US investor ought to be diversified around the world. I think that, uh, um, you, know, you know, another issue, of course, is the dollar is too high and I think it will come down over time. Uh, and that will, fur- from a US perspective, further enhance the value of international investments. Just to jump back to your comment on rising interest rates and U.S. fiscal deficits, as you mentioned, this year we've seen the U.S. 10-year yield increase by quite a lot, but we're still seeing negative real rates. Do you think that there will be a return of the bond vigilante as there was a time where the bond market was feared by politicians? Actually, I do. I, I, think, this, uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting 24 months in macroeconomics because I think that the amount of fiscal stimulus is so massive that it's almost going to jolt this economy back to uh, you know, a new orbit. Um, for, we spent a decade after the great financial crisis in what I would call a stagnation equilibrium of low interest rates, very easy money, which did nothing to actually um, stimulate economic growth and uh, kept inflation low. There is so much fiscal stimulus here that I think it's going to change people's expectations. You know, the, it's going to bring us to full employment very fast. I think it's going to push up uh, short-term rates. It's going to cause fears of inflation actually to rise. And I think that uh, could push us back to um, a sort of a new equilibrium with, uh, with positive real rates again, because I think that is a natural order of things. It's, uh, negative real rates don't actually make any sense if you think about it. Um, and I think we will get back to positive real rates uh, because of the shock of so much uh, fiscal spending uh, after, the, uh, after the pandemic recession. Yeah, that's really insightful. Um, and I guess just before we wrap up, I have just some final questions for you. Um, sure. So firstly, a lot of the members in the SMF will be starting out or wishing to, to pursue a career in the industry. I just, I'd like to know what advice you would give to students trying to break into finance and what skills do you think will be most important for today's graduates? Well, a few things. One, knock on every door. Um, you just don't don't be shy about you know reaching out to strangers. Luckily, you live in an age where you can reach out to strangers much more easy than I ever could at your age. But um, what, whatever social media or uh, LinkedIn or whatever you use, I mean, just reach out to people. Figure out figure out what who who you need to talk to in different companies or who might be able to help. Don't ever accept that the HR department knows what they're uh, is is your friend. They're not. They, your your resume is one of a 
a thousand resumes in their pile and their, their job is to reduce the pile. So you have to find somebody in the company to advocate for your, basically to get you an interview. So do, do be, be, be nice, be you know, thoughtful, but be aggressive in reaching out to as many people as you can as you try to move forward your career. Second of all, always watch what you write. If you write a cover letter, you put a resume, do not put a type on this. Read it, make sure that some, somebody you actually trust as, as, a, as an English major or something can read it too, to make sure that it is precise and exact. You don't ever want to, that's, that's your only exposure to people to start with. So that any email resume has got to be really good. Um, third thing is don't just focus on the, on the, on the finance. Most people in our, in our business are pretty good at the math side, pretty good at the analytical side. That's fine. That's almost a given. Um, what's not, what's much rare are people who are able to communicate well, both verbally and in writing. Um, so, you know, read a lot, read fiction. And people always ask me what, you know, what books have I read? And, and then they're kind of shocked to read that, to hear that basically I spent my time reading 19th century novels. And it's, you know, I'd much rather read for the fun of it than, than uh, you know, I have to do enough analytical stuff in my day work. Uh, but but be, a, be a great writer. Um, also, you know, if you're not part of the debate club, join it. Get to be a great speaker. It's really important uh, to, you know, the, the problems that people run into in finance is they're all, everyone's great analytically, but it's, uh, it's one in 20 or one in 50 who can really both write and communicate clearly. And those are the people who I think uh, are really the most successful in finance because it's, it, you know, it's something that people need, but people don't focus on. Related to this, and as a final question, David, what are you reading these days? <laughs> well, all, all pretty ancient. I, I've, uh, I've read everything by, by Dickens. I've, I'm just in one of my pandemic uh, expeditions here. I'm reading everything by Arthur Conan Doyle. So I've decided to re read Sherlock Holmes from start to finish. Uh, but, it, but usually it's um, usually it has to, you know, my wife thinks I'm antiquated, but it, I, I have to, it has to be about 100 years old because they, they just have, they had such a, a wider use of, of language back then. And I think, you know, one of the sad parts of the age that we live in is that people so much, spend so much time texting and, and, uh, I mean, and, you know, Instagramming that, that we've sort of lost the art of using many, many words to try to explain exactly what we mean. Uh, and so basically, anything, so long as it was written 100 years ago, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, um, I've actually just finished reading David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. And uh, isn't it wonderful? You know, I, I, read it, I read it when I was, you know, the, the funny thing, it's like a book, if you read a book when you're like nine, which is, I think when I first read it, I didn't understand it at all. And then you read later, it's actually a different book. Mm -hmm. as you get older so it's yeah that's a beautiful piece of work yeah i think you you touched on it. it's just it's often not so much the story in some cases but his use of english to describe mm -hmm. things is very excellent um so thank you very much david it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and it's been really insightful yeah, you're very welcome Kevin. that was david kelly there chief global strategist at jp morgan david has a podcast of his own called insights now and he posts regularly on linkedin for more information about the Investors and Entrepreneurs Society, be sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening and have a great day.